Morning, everybody. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Um, If you'd like to get your Bibles uh, ready, um, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Mark. Um, In the Church Bibles, that's on page 1023. Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. 1,023. Okay, starting at verse 1, Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So I've been restudying the four different resurrection accounts um, over the last week and a half or so, um, which um, is a great experience. I don't know the last time that you read all four different accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and I'll be honest, there were bits of it that I forgot. When I reread Matthew, I forgot about some stuff. I forgot um, that they put guards outside the tomb. I kind of reread it again. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. So if you haven't reread Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the resurrection accounts recently, can I encourage you to do that? It's a really, really interesting thing to do. And, and what it does is it brings you up face to face with the truth of the matter of these stories. You, you can't kind of get past it. Um, there are differences between the Gospels. I don't know how well you know them, but there are differences. Um, But don't let that trouble you. Don't let that trouble you that there are differences. In fact, the fact that there are differences, for me, serves to highlight a couple of things. First of all, it tells me that something definitely happened that day. You've got four different people telling four different accounts. Something happened. Something happened. And actually, the fact that the accounts are all slightly different, tells me that something happened that was so remarkable and wondrous and difficult to explain that there's some inconsistencies or different emphases on the different accounts. Something happened on that day. It was strange and wondrous and terrifying and exhilarating, so much so that the truth of the matter still sits beyond easy explanation of several eyewitness accounts. But what all four accounts agree, of course, is that the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Jesus had risen. And if nothing else this morning, can I encourage you, I hope, that you're going to come again to the empty tomb and ask yourself, what do you really believe? What do you really believe? 
This story is no general metaphor about new life. It's not a parable. It's not a parable. It's not about bunny rabbits and chicks and chocolate eggs, nice though those things are. It's a unique, earth-shattering, universe-changing moment. This is a moment of history, and no matter what you believe this morning, it is a fact that this moment changed human history forever, regardless of what you believe. That's a fact. And so we have to wrestle with it this morning. We have to step through into the open door of the tomb, and I hope with eyes of faith and say, what happened? And I believe that this moment has the power to change our lives as well, if we are just to look into that tomb again. You see, I think sometimes Christians are a little bit embarrassed to proclaim the historical truth of the resurrection. I think sometimes we're a little bit embarrassed. You see, I think secular society doesn't mind so much the idea of the crucifixion. I think people can kind of get on board with that. I think people are happy to accept that Jesus was a good man and that he was influential and he did great things and he was crucified and that that's very sad. I think people are okay with that. That's fairly safe territory. But the truth is that the work of the cross alone is an incomplete work. It's an incomplete work. It only means what it means because of the resurrection. It only means what it means because of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul makes that abundantly clear. 1 Corinthians 15. If we don't have the resurrection, we have nothing. We have nothing. He says our faith is foolishness if we don't have the resurrection. We have to decide what we believe this morning. And I think if we're not careful as Christians, sometimes we can find ourselves stuck at the cross. If you think about a lot of the songs that we sing and the things that we talk about, we find ourselves stuck at the cross, a little bit like the women who brought burial spices to the tomb, who were there to pay respects to a dead man, not to a risen Lord. I mean, they were there, (laughs) and we're going to come back to that, but they were stuck at the cross. The problem we face, of course, is that we think our modern, rationalistic, scientific, post-enlightenment way of thinking will not allow for a bodily resurrection. It's preposterous, people say. No intelligent person would believe this nonsense. It's preposterous. It's a fairy tale created by some uneducated disciples who just wouldn't accept that it was over, that their leader had gone. They would not accept it, and so they made this story up. And this argument, of course, is built on the ridiculous notion that somehow in the first century, people didn't understand that dead people tended to stay dead. Like somehow our modern medicine has proven that beyond any shadow of a doubt. It's not a new idea, everybody. I think people were well acquainted with death at that time. And actually, if you read the Gospels really closely, have you noticed that what it says is that they didn't actually believe it was going to happen? Have you ever noticed that? They didn't believe it was going to happen. Have you ever wondered why the resurrection account doesn't include 11 disciples kind of pulling an all-nighter, you know, with their croissants and their coffee, waiting for sunrise? Why are they not there? Why are they not there? He told them time and time again, I will be raised on the third day. Time and time again, he told them. These guys spent three years with Jesus, and over and over again, he said to them, I'm going to be raised on the third day, just like Scripture says. I'm going to be raised. You remember Jonah? It's going to be a bit like that. I'm going to be raised on the third day. Don't worry. 
It's going to happen. Three years. And yet these disciples were so skeptical that they weren't even there. They weren't even there. Can you believe it? They were scattered in their various hiding places. Some we know were preparing to leave Jerusalem, maybe get out of the city before it all kicks off. Some of them, I suppose, were consoling the grieving mother of Jesus, his family, feeling sad, lamenting. I imagine Peter hiding somewhere in the dark. This is my imagination. It's not scriptural. I imagine Peter hiding somewhere in a dark place, reflecting on his failure to stand up for his friend when he needed him the most, worrying about what his life was all about now, lost. It's Peter, isn't it? Where were they all? The point, everybody, is that it was just as unthinkable, just as unthinkable 2,000 years ago that Jesus would rise from the dead. You know, the, 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 the Jews of this period would not believe in a bodily resurrection of a human being. They just wouldn't believe in it. It was completely outside their realm of experience. They believed in Yahweh. They didn't believe in a man who could rise from the dead. Wouldn't believe it. We're in good company if we're skeptical this morning, I guess is my point. Because me too, right? This is difficult to believe. If you're skeptical, if you doubt whether this might be true, we're in pretty good company because that was Jesus' followers too. This is not a story made up of people out of their imagination because they couldn't accept that it was over. They were not there. They didn't believe it. They had doubts and questions. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm convinced that this happened. I can't explain it to you, but I'm convinced that it happened. Somehow, his physical body was made new. There is no better explanation for what happens next in the life of the church. None. There were dozens of messianic movements. All of those messiahs ended up um, dead. They were all crucified and executed, and everyone went home. None of those movements took hold in the way that the Christian church did. What do we have as an explanation for the fact that this thing took root, that it's now the biggest faith in the, in the, in the world? What could possibly explain that? There is no historical argument better than it actually happened. Jesus rose from the dead. There is no other explanation. I believe it. I believe it with my mind. I'm not an idiot. I believe it with my mind that it happened. I believe it with my heart. And my question for you this morning is, do you believe it too? And if not, why not? So what does it all mean? What does it actually mean? If we just accept for a moment this happened, what does it mean? What's changed for you and for me and for the world because Jesus rose again? And the answer is everything. Everything is changed. The Scripture tells us that everything is made new because of the resurrection. Whilst the cross is the moment when Jesus takes on the just consequences of the corruption of his world, the empty tomb is when everything is made new. Have you ever considered why it's important that Jesus rose on the third day, the timing of it? There's a whole interesting study in here, and if you want to do this later, you can do it. Go back to when the Ten Commandments were given, by the way, because the presence of the Lord comes down the mountain on the third day. So for those of you interested in where this comes from, go back to Jonah, something that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Matthew. But what about the third day thing? Why is it 
three days. Notice in verse 2 of our passage, it doesn't talk about the third day, does it? Chapter 16, verse 2 of Mark, and this is true in all of the Gospels, it says, very early on, the first day of the week. You notice that? The first day of the week. Not the third day, the first day of the week. Just do the timeline for a moment. Jesus was crucified the day before the Sabbath, right? The Friday, Good Friday. And that's the sixth day of the week in the kind of Jewish way of thinking about the week. So Friday was day six, okay? Everyone with me now? Good. Friday was day six. And then their custom was that they would rest on the Sabbath, day seven, which was the last day of the week. And then the Sunday, today, would be the first day of the week. And that's why no one was there on the Sabbath, because it's the Sabbath, and you can't do anything like go and anoint Jesus' body on the Sabbath. You have to stay away. And what we know is that Jesus died unusually quickly for a crucifixion victim. That's remarked in Gospel of Mark and elsewhere, chapter 15. You know, Pilate says, really? He's dead already? It normally took more than a day for somebody to die when they'd been crucified. It was almost as though Jesus was totally in control of the timing of these things. And why is that? Well, There's another moment in the Bible where timing is important. It's in Genesis chapter 1. It's in Genesis chapter 1. The creation poem. And if we line up Genesis chapter 1 with the Holy Week, the week that we're celebrating this week, what do we see? Well, we find that on the sixth day, God created life, human beings, according to Genesis chapter 1. And on the sixth day of Holy Week, Jesus was crucified. Have you ever noticed that? The sixth day, Jesus is crucified, redeeming the people he created. And we know that the seventh day is the day when God rests. And in, the, in this account, the seventh day of Holy Week, everything pauses. Jesus is in the tomb. Creation takes a breath. And then we have the first day of the week. The first day day of the week. Creation part two, the first day of the week. As the sun rises, we're told, everything is made new. New order has been brought to the chaos of a fallen world. People are found in a garden again. (laughs) I mean, the parallels are remarkable. It's a new moment of creation is what happens. God's new kingdom. It's something that Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, But Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Genesis 1, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, Mark 16. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. On that third day, on that first day of the new week, Jesus inaugurated a new kingdom, a new world. And like the first Adam, his resurrected body stands as the first fruits of this new world. He made it possible for us to believe and be made alive in him, completely new. And that's what we celebrate today. As it says in Revelation, I am making everything new, Jesus says. It is done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. It's Revelation 21. Okay, so who is this new creation for? Who is it for? What can we learn now? What does it mean for us? Well, let's notice a few of the characters in this story. 
Notice it's the women who are the first witnesses of the resurrection. And about two-thirds of you say, well, of course. (laughs) It's the women. Now, at this time in history, women were powerless. They were disregarded. They were marginalized. I don't know if you know, but a lot of the early skepticism about these eyewitness accounts was because women are prone to hysteria, so the ancient writers tell us. I'm not endorsing that view, by the way. But that's what people believed. Oh, it was just the women. In fact, the disciples in one of the gospel accounts say, oh, don't be ridiculous. They came and they say, Jesus is alive. I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. You're just being crazy women. Why would Jesus choose to reveal himself to the women first? Ever wondered that? You know, if the intention was a 100% cast-iron reliable narrative in this society, you would not choose these people to reveal yourself to first. It wouldn't make sense because people would be doubtful because women, we're told, by ancient writers, are prone to hysteria. Sorry, I'm just enjoying that a little bit. You can throw things at me later. I don't actually believe that. I think it makes total sense that the women were there, if I'm honest, and the men were nowhere to be seen, but that's another matter. What this is telling us is that Jesus' kingdom will be different. It will be different. It will be an upside-down kingdom when those who have been marginalized in society will actually be given the place of greatest honor. We're told that the first will be last and the last first. You know, the most influential people in Jesus' circle were nowhere to be seen. It was the women who were there. And God says, it's for people like you that I've come. It's not for the qualified this morning. It's for you and me. It's not for the qualified. It's not about status. It is for all of us. And notice the grace that's woven into this narrative too. And you see, I think Jesus would have every right to be very angry with his followers. Have you ever considered that? What's an alternative message that he could have left with the angel for when they arrived? Of course he's not here, you idiots. What's wrong with you? He couldn't have been clearer about this. He told you exactly what was going to happen multiple times. You saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. What's wrong with you? You losers. He's done with you guys. He's going to find somebody else who will believe what he says. That's not what the angel says, of course. He says with a wry smile on his face, my imagination, You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Notice the language. Jesus the Nazarene, not the Christ. You're looking for the wrong Jesus. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. And then he says, go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Come on, guys. I do love this moment, though. What does it tell us? The risen Christ will seek them out. Notice that? The message isn't, he's going to stay here while you go sort yourselves out and then you can come back and worship him. No, he's going to come and find you. He's going to go to Galilee and he's going to meet with you like he said he would. He's going to go to where they are. Or it says again in Revelation, he's going to stand at the door and knock this morning and go to where we are. He's coming to meet us. He's knocking on the doors of our hearts this morning in order to make himself known. What a fantastic truth. And finally this morning, last thing. You might be thinking, yeah, but not for me. Not for me. Not after everything I've done. 
not after what I've said. Not for me. This message isn't for me. Well, if that's how you feel this morning, there's an encouragement here for you too. For those of us who feel deeply unworthy that this invitation somehow doesn't apply, notice the little note the angel says. He says, tell his disciples and Peter. Do you notice that? And Peter. Name check. Tell his disciples and Peter. Peter, who'd fallen from a high place to a low place, disgraced the one disciple who said, I'll go wherever you go. And yet, when it got difficult, he let him down, holed up somewhere in a dark corner, racked by guilt and by shame, believing that everything he'd stood before had come for nothing. But Jesus says, tell Peter to be there. He needs to be there. I have plans for him more than he realizes. My friends, this kingdom is for the screw-ups. It's for me, and it's for you. It's for the screw-ups. It's for those people who count themselves worthless, who've let God down time and time again, and sometimes feel like there's no way back. If that's how we feel this morning, the resurrected Christ invites you by name to meet with Him. That's what I believe. He invites you into this new creation. He knocks at the door of our hearts this morning, the doors of shame, doubt, skepticism, of regret, of fear, of pride, of anger, and he knocks and he asks whether we will invite him in to eat with us. That's the invitation. And so can I encourage you this morning to come to the table, open your hearts again, not just to the crucified man, Jesus the Nazarene, but also to the risen Christ. Walk through the door of the tomb, Christ the King, who has triumphed over death and is making all things new. Amen? Amen.